0: We've been going through our Advent series, Advent uh, meaning the anticipation of the arrival as we look back on how Christ has come and then we cascade our vision forward to consider that he is going to come again and all the glorious implications of that. And uh, we've been deep diving into some Old Testament texts so that we can see how these words that seem to appear and get plastered everywhere at Christmas, uh, words like love, hope, joy, and peace, uh, we're looking at those carefully to see that they're not just uh, cliches, Christian cliches, uh, cultural, sort of seasonal, uh, jingly jangly cliches. But these words uh, are massive themes throughout the Bible, massive themes. They span the meta narrative of all Scripture, and we want to be encouraged by it and excited by it. Last week we looked at love. And uh, this week we're going to look at hope. We we Last week we looked at how God's love has been on the move since Genesis. God's plans for Operation Christmas started in Genesis 3, right? After the, the fall of man, we discovered that God moves in great love towards his creation. And love is something that uh, in the English, um, maybe we use that word broadly and it loses its meaning because you can say... I love my wife and I love coffee and I love my kids and I love when I get green lights on King Street. And surely we don't mean all those things fall in the same category of, of meaning for us, but we use the word love that way. Whereas the biblical uh, understanding of God's love that was on the move since, since uh, Genesis 3 found in Jesus and exemplified through his life is this agape love or this love of preference, a love that says I will love you at your benefit for, uh, for your benefit at my expense, and so right from Genesis three, we see that love of God moving throughout human history for our benefit as his, at his expense. Today we're going to look at hope. Uh, I remember when I was a, a little little kid. I was probably seven or eight years old. I went into Canadian Tire one time, and they had this um, uh, not by myself, with my parents but I went in and uh, they had this go-kart. It was a gas-powered go-kart that you could win in a draw. And I remember filling out so many of those little uh, draw uh, uh, tickets. And uh, every time we went into Canadian Tire, I just kept filling them out, filling them out, filling them out. All I could think about was winning this go-kart and uh, this little race car. And for those of you who who know me, I can just become so tunnel-visioned about something and get it in my head and it's the only thing I think about. And I just remember for weeks, all I thought about leading up to the day of the draw was winning this go-kart. Well, I didn't win the go-kart. And of course, my hopes were dashed. And uh, that's that's why I never became a professional race car driver. Uh, If that had gone differently, wow, uh, my life would have had a completely different story. But I hoped for it. I was hoping. And uh, I didn't win the go-kart lottery. And, uh, you know, you've got stories of uh, being a child where you hoped for something and didn't work out. You've also got stories in your adult life of hoping for things and uh, that that feeling of, uh, of, of uh, tension while you're hoping for something to work out. I remember when I had to write my ordination exams for our presbytery after I'd finished my work at seminary and the first time I wrote those exams, I failed. And I remember driving home and I was so distraught and I was stressed out and I was thinking about all the implications of if I didn't pass these exams, and so I signed up for round two and I wrote all the exams again. And that time I, that time I did pass those exams. They said, okay, we're going to move you on to the next you know, level where you got to stand before the uh, Jedi Council and be examined orally. And I remember standing in front of the presbytery as I was being peppered for a very, very long time. And then they said, okay, uh, thank you, Paul. You can go in the... They sent me into another room while they deliberated on all my answers. And I remember sitting in that room hoping that the, I was going to uh, be passed and, uh, and receive my ordination. I remember when they, when they walked in the room and they said, congratulations, uh, uh, we celebrate with you and we, we celebrate your ordination that you've passed these exams. I remember it felt like a granite backpack fell off and landed on the ground. You all have stories like that where you are hoping for something. We are hardwired for hope. When you think about your life, it's just one event after the next. All of the high points are when your hope was realized and all the low points are when your hope was dashed. And so when we come to the scriptures and we look at the constant call throughout the Bible to hope, the question is, what is that hope? Is it like a fingers crossed go-kart lottery? Is that really what the hope is? We just kind of cross our fingers and hope this thing turns out? Or is biblical hope like optimism that's rooted in all of our hard work? Like I was sitting in that room hoping on the basis of all my sweat equity that I had succeeded. Is that what biblical hope is? Is biblical hope uh, just a function of the will? You know, choosing to be a half glass full kind of a person, uh, You know, imagining how in any given scenario, you know, good things can sprout out of the bad. And if we send out enough positive vibes into the universe, we can manifest realities. Uh, Is that what biblical hope is? Is it sort of a silver lining bumper sticker theology where we just kind of go through life like, hey, whatever I'm going through right now, it's going to turn out okay. Is that what it is? Well, we're going to look this morning at Christian hope. We're going to find that it's not like a lottery um, that's volatile Hope is not volatile at all. Whenever the Bible calls us to hope, the Bible is not calling us to roll a dice. It's calling us to drop an anchor. And our text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40. And um, I'm going to take a few verses from Isaiah chapter 40 to give you a a big, broad picture of the message of hope uh, for the people of God at a very difficult time. We're going to see its significance then, and we're going to look at its relevance now. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his work is before him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and he reduces the judges of this world to nothing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even the youths grow tired and weary and young men fall exhausted. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is God's word. Now maybe you're thinking, that's not very Christmassy. Where are the shepherds? Where are the wise men? We know there were three. I've seen the nativity scenes in the mall. This is very Christmassy. God offered strength to his people through the empowering posture of hope for millennia before that first Christmas. And that is why hope is our posture now as we live as the children of God, not ruled by circumstances, because we're living in light of the implications of that first Christmas. so, this text takes place during a dark and oblique bleak time for the children of God. Absolutely everything is undone. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem's been destroyed. So that means the work of Solomon's undone. The work of Nehemiah is undone. There's no king on the throne. So the work of David is undone. They're not following the laws and the ways of God, so that means that the work of, Mo- of Moses is undone. Uh, their land is gone, so the work of Joshua is undone. And now they're exiles in Babylon, which means the work of Abraham is undone. In other words, when this text is given for the people of God, everything that could possibly have gone wrong in their lives has gone wrong. They have no physical reason to be hoping uh, for, to have hope because everything has been absolutely undone. But this chapter catapults the reader, catapults that original audience, catapults those people into a future promise that is that is so sure, because of course God is making it. He's got the power to keep it. God is calling them into hope. He's calling them to lift their soul. He's calling them to stop and pause and meditate on a promise that in such a way that... Uh, it lifts their soul out of the dismay. Now, the people of God are living at this time as exiles in Babylon. Christ came that first Christmas, born under Roman rule, the new Babylon. So our God is well acquainted uh, with being born into suffering, just as the, as the children of Israel were raising children in Babylon, being born into uh, tremendous suffering. But right in the midst of all of the suffering, God calls them into this strength. He calls them into hope. And the reason he does this, of course, is because he is inviting his people, because of his promise, because of his love, he is inviting them into a posture where they can rise above the difficulty and they can experience joy and they can experience his presence and they can experience his empowering grace right in the midst of what it is that they're going through. There is a relevance of his hope for today. So we're going to unpack this text Uh, asking two questions. The first question is, who is this God that calls us to this hope? And the second question is, how do we avail ourselves of the power that God is actually promising in this hope? So first question, who is this God that calls us to hope? What the text gives us is, our God is both transcendent and tender. He is a loving shepherd and the Lord over all creation. Loving shepherd uh, in verse 10 and 11, Lord over all creation, verses 22 to 28. When you look at uh, verse 11, notice that what the shepherd does is he carries the sheep, uh, and uh, your your version of the Bible may say close to the bosom, close to the heart. It's very interesting because shepherds would uh, traditionally carry sheep over their shoulders. Uh, when you re- rescue a wandering sheep, they'd throw it over their shoulders and carry the sheep. And um, I'm going to borrow from Charles Spurgeon here to show you the beauty of why this, uh, why this text says that the shepherd is carrying the sheep close to the bosom and uh, the significance of that poetry. Spurgeon says it this way, to carry is kindness, but to carry in the bosom is loving kindness. The shoulders are for power and the back is for force, but the bosom is the seat of love. This is a window into the picture of the heart of this good shepherd. And as you know, um, there's a lot of uh, imagery and talk uh, of shepherds at Christmas because, of course, shepherds appear in the birth narrative of Jesus. But, you know, our God has been foreshadowing his coming as a shepherd for millennia, anticipating that first Christmas. He has been setting the divine narrative for when he would come in Jesus Christ as the great shepherd that first Christmas. And he's been doing it. This text talks about the the good shepherd carrying us close to his bosom, but God has been doing this, giving us this shepherd imagery since Genesis. Abel was a shepherd who pleased God and he was killed by his brother. Jesus is the great shepherd who perfectly pleased God, who was crucified by his brothers. Jacob was a shepherd who struggled with God and as a result of that struggle was wounded. Jesus is the greater Jacob, who struggled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as a result of that struggle, went to the cross and was willingly wounded and died. Joseph was a shepherd who was sold by his brothers, persecuted, but was later exalted. Jesus is the greater Joseph, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver by his brothers, who was persecuted on the cross, but later through the empty tomb was exalted. Moses was like Uh, a shepherd who led the people out of slavery and death in Egypt. Jesus, of course, is the greater Moses because salvation did not come by the law, but through grace. And just as Moses led his people from slavery and death in Egypt, Jesus leads us as a good shepherd out of slavery and death uh, to sin. David was the shepherd king. And Jesus is the greater shepherd, the greater David, the shepherd of our souls whose kingdom will know no end. So you see, by the time you get to Isaiah 40, there have been numerous pictures of this loving shepherd who would come. Care for the sheep, love the sheep, save the sheep. This is the God who's calling us into hope. But he's not just this loving shepherd. He's also a transcendent Lord over all creation. Verses 22 to 28 say, he stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He's the Lord over nature and earth. He brings the princes to naught and he reduces the judges of this world to nothing. He's not just Lord over nature and earth. He's Lord over all the people who have all the power on the earth. The princes and the judges. Those who have geopolitical power. Those who have economic power. Those who have legislative power. In the ancient world, if you had geopolitical power, you know, economic power, legislative power, in the ancient world, you considered yourself a god. And they were very overt about that. Seeing themselves as divine. Now today, if you have geopolitical power, mass economic power, legislative power, nobody overtly speaks about themselves as God. Well, very few would dare to do that. Not so overt. But in a covert way, <clears throat> the power um, of sin that corrupts, of course, if, that we see the powers in the world that leading to all form of sin and sadness, it's a little bit like, my precious. And as long as you are you know compelled by the power of the precious then um, uh, it, it leads to all manner of of oppression and injustice and what this text gives us is the loving shepherd is also the lord over all creation a, 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 re, a something that is significant a reason for which the people the first readers of this Christians living in Babylon would have found tremendous comfort in for a good reason. Uh, this is because, of course, they were called to seek the good of the city, just as you and I are called to seek the good of the city. Which leads us to the second thing, and that is how do we avail ourselves of um, the power that God promises in this hope? How do we avail ourselves of that? Well, the text tells us that you know, if we hope in God, that will renew us. And if we hope in anything less than God, that will exhaust us. Um, This pandemic that we have all been enduring for the last nine months, um, it's been a little bit, made 2020 like a dumpster fire. Only dumpster fires don't last this long. And uh, so it's been very difficult because we've been talking about the same thing for nine months and struggling as we hear the same instructions for nine months and public health has been telling us to do the same things for nine months and some of us have been trying to for nine months and some people have been ignoring those things for nine months and there's been the same sorts of arguments for nine months and it's very, very tiring. It's very, very exhausting. It's a little bit like Groundhog Day except uh, when Bill Murray was going on dates with uh, Andy McDowell, they weren't on Zoom. So in that sense, it's not like... Groundhog Day, but you know, the cultural expression, um, and you can't hardly read a, a, an article or watch a news report without getting a sense of it. The cultural expression is that we are exhausted. Our neighbors are exhausted and uh, the city is exhausted and we are exhausted. So this, is a, this call to hope is for those who are exhausted, right? They're called to it. Their city's been burned, their temple's been burned, they're waking up every day walking by bricks that have carvings in them saying to the glory of Marduk. And it just kind of seems like the God of Israel has totally failed, and they're waking up and they're raising kids in a culture that's totally hostile toward their worship and their God. So God is not insensitive to our exhaustion. He's not insensitive to our suffering. God is not tone deaf. The Bible is not tone deaf um, to suffering. Because uh, God hasn't lost a step and he's not indifferent to our suffering. Our God, the good shepherd, came in Jesus Christ that first Christmas day to personally enter into our suffering. Of course, we know that through his perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection that the gospel promises that one day he will end and eradicate all that suffering. But verse 28 says, if you look at verse 28, it says, God does not get tired God does not grow weary. The text says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and he increases power to the weak. If, if 2020 had a tagline, it would be 2020, weary and weak. And our God, who is above it all, He calls us to redirect our hope, to put it specifically in him, so that by clinging to him, our soul can rise above it all. Surrounded by the dismay of the immediate, stressful, sorrowful, tiring things, you, Christian, are not consumed by the dismay of immediate, stressful, sorrowful, tiring things. That's why we're given the image of the eagle, Eagles do not flutter around and get blown around in storms like birds. Eagles don't need to, you know, sort of hide from storms like other little birds. Eagles lock their wings and they rise above storms. They rise above the storms not on their own strength. So we don't, we, we don't read Isaiah 40 like, yeah, I'm a Christian who can rise above the storm. And if I have enough faith, I'll be bigger, better, faster, stronger. That's not, what the, that's not how eagles get above storms. Eagles don't get above storms on their own strength. Eagles are carried there. In fact, it is the, it is the pressure of the storm that pushes them to the place of peace. So what is it that you're clinging to? Because as soon as the storm hits your life, whether it's a, a pandemic that you know wreaks havoc and, dis- and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Disruption, disrupts everything. Uh, what is it that you're clinging to? Does that storm blow away your peace or does the storm blow you to the actual place of peace? And what this text is saying is if your hope is in anything other than God, you are not being blown into a place of peace. The storm comes and blows away your peace. You're hoping in the strength and vitality of your body. That is not a good place to put your hope. You're hoping in economics, you're hoping in your legal, um, or sorry, your, uh, the, the political hero to legislate things favorable for you. That is not a good place to put your hope. You're putting your hope in your family, your children, as them being your source of joy. Not a good place to put your hope. You, you, we, there's only one place we can go so that when the storm rages, we are blown into a place where our soul is at a place of peace. And that is actually in, of course, God himself. When you look at verses um, 30 to 31, the text says that even the youths grow tired and weary and young men fall exhausted. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, they soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And so it, what this shows us, of course, is that um, when the storm comes, um, the storm doesn't discriminate. You can be young and strong and full of vitality and you'll it'll exhaust you too. And when we look at the last nine months, the challenges that this pandemic has brought, it hasn't discriminated. It's not that everybody who's 70 year old and older uh, are struggling uh, with depression or anxiety or a combination of the two. Young people, exhausted. Young people who are, their bodies are full of health and strength and they've got, a, you know, by all appearances, the future is ahead of them and yet the struggle is real. It is exhausting. And so where is it that we turn? Where is it that we put our hope? There's only one place we can go. And, the, and, and God is calling us uh, out of his great grace, to bring uh, just a tremendous strength and comfort for us there. And all of this strength and all of this endurance, it's not abstract, it's concrete. Right? The, the, remember, the first readers who read this in Babylon, and weren't like, mm, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a great uh, mystical and metaphorical, spiritual way of thinking about things, rising above the storms. Back to life in Babylon, it's not abstract, it's very concrete. They were called to seek the good of the city, just like you and I in Waterloo Region, we are called to seek the good of the city. So practically on the ground, what does that look like? Well, we can be a blessing during a very difficult and dark, uh, dismal, frustrating, tiring time. When we aren't getting sucked into what everybody else is being sucked into. When, when our rhetoric doesn't sound like everybody else's rhetoric. And we're not just fully exhausted and exasperated. But we are actually in a position to give a defense for the hope that we are enjoying. The peace that we are enjoying. Sharing our faith. Speaking of the goodness of Christ. Speaking out the reality of our God who day-to-day here in Waterloo Region, as we are muscling through these difficult days together, um, causes our hearts um, to find strength that practically, physically does not make sense, and yet we enjoy it because our God is real and vibrant, and he lifts us. And united to Christ, full of the Spirit of Christ, it has day-to-day practical impact, practical outworking. And that looks like being uh, this text calling us to hope, it's very practical. In the same way that an exhausted runner has to stop, make a decision to grab the water and replenish their soul, we have to make a decision every single day to stop, <laughs> take God's word, prayer, and meditate and replenish our soul and teach our children to do the same. and To, to have that spiritual discipline of renewal, this is what God has given us, so that it has a practical daily outworking as we are truly uh, rejuvenated and brought into a place of strength and brought into a place of hope where we can love our neighbors and be bold and share the gospel in our city. and Not in a vague way, I believe in God and God is good. <clears throat> in a specific way, I believe in Jesus Christ and his resurrection and because I am united to him, that union has implications. Uh, his spirit quite literally rejuvenates me and brings joy in the midst of these difficult and hard times. Mm -hmm. And so um, we see that in the same way that the eagle doesn't get above the storm by flapping furiously, you and I don't get above the storm uh, by religiously flapping furiously. It's by turning to God very intentionally every day, teaching our children to do the same. That's where the strength is, is, uh, is found. And that's where the strength is enjoyed. So when you see the word hope plastered absolutely everywhere this Christmas, remember, this is not a cliche sentiment. This is a massive theme throughout all of scripture. This is an empowering pro- po- posture. Hope is something that God has called his people to for millennia leading up to that first Christmas. Hope is the reason for which we live our lives empowered and strengthened in these difficult days because of that first Christmas. Our God remained committed to his covenant to bring hope and he did it in a jaw-dropping contradiction of what we actually deserve. Our God repeatedly met his people's foolishness and rebellion with mercy and a future promise. And so now our God meets our foolishness and rebellion with his pardon in Jesus Christ. Did Israel sin? Yes, Uh Is that where God left them? No. Do you and I sin? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. This beautiful world that is broken uh, because of sin will be restored. That is the gospel promise. And friends, the people who received this this word in Babylon, they died without having seen the physical manifestation of this promise. They lived and died and the situation didn't change. So you see, biblical hope is not, oh, I see, I just put my hope in God changing the situation. You and I could live and die and not see the manifestation of the promises of God's word. That, that has no bearing on the power that is available, on the hope that God is calling us to, because we're just quite simply not held hostage by circumstance any more than they were in Babylon. They were called to seek the good of Babylon all their days, and you and I are called to seek the good of Waterloo Region. All of our days. And so we do it with joy and gladness in our heart. I'm going to close with this. Verse 30, the verse that says hope in the Lord. uh, Some of your um, English translations will say wait on the Lord, hope on the Lord, wait on the Lord. In the Hebrew, to hope is kava, which comes from the Hebrew word kav, which means rope. So the picture here is when you cling tightly to a rope, it creates tension until something gives. So Christian hope is clinging to God until he gives. And what is it that he gives? Strength, grace, peace, quiet in the soul, lifts you above the storm, peace in the midst of the disaster zone. This is what he gives. And sometimes what God gives looks like a massive physical manifestation of situations changing and turning out. Physical healing, relational healing, things turning around situations, changing physical manifestation of his of, of his blessing at work or uh, uh, you know with friends and family. it can manifest in many, many ways right ways in which ways that resemble the way we ask, ways that don 't resemble the way we ask, but we cling, we hope we 're clinging to God, and the point I think that I want you to take from all of this is that everybody 's already clinging to something anyways. Mm-hmm. You're already clinging. The question is, what does it give? Or does it give out? Mm-hmm. The good news of the gospel is that even though you and I fail to cling, fail to grip, we have weeks where we falter and fail and cling to all kinds of things that let us down. Even though we fail, John 10 tells us, Jesus says, we are in the Father's grip. And nobody takes us out. So what God is saying is, I've already got a grip on you. Grip to me. Mm-hmm. Hope in the one who does not let you go. And you will not slowly sink into the bog of sadness that everybody else is trying so very hard not to sink into. Optimism is choosing to see in any situation how situation could turn out. Sort of Christian mysticism is the idea that if I if I obey enough, God is obligated to have everything to work out. But biblical hope is clinging to God for God. So that united to Christ, you soar when nothing is working out. This babe in the manger would become the king on the cross. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So you will find strength for what you need ahead of you as you meditate on the millennia of God's faithfulness behind you. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases power to the weak. Even the youths will grow tired and weary, and young men will fall exhausted. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Amen.